Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Hi, I'm Jane Whitney. Welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. On every episode, we bring together diverse voices from across the nation to discuss the most pressing and controversial issues of our time, issues that make a difference in your life. On August 22nd, a trio of top national security experts talked about the growing threat of domestic violent extremism and homegrown terrorism. September 11th crushed our innocence about being safe at home from foreign terrorists. Now, 20 years later, we're grappling with how the violent attack on the U.S. Capitol by our fellow Americans crushed our collective soul. Today, we'll focus on the metastasizing disease known as domestic violent extremism. Here to brief us on the threat that's infected our country's nervous system are three distinguished national security experts. Joining us are John Brennan, former director of the CIA, Frank Figluzzi, former FBI assistant director for counterintelligence, and Representative Alyssa Slotkin, who chairs the House Intelligence and Counterterrorism Subcommittee. And we're grateful to have you all with us here today. Alyssa, I'm going to start with you because you spent the first 20 years of your career as a public servant devoted to preventing terror attacks in the post 9-11 era. And you were a CIA analyst. You served in the Middle East. You briefed both Presidents Obama and President Bush on national security matters. Now you're on a mission to thwart domestic violent extremism. Can you tell us how serious that threat is? Yeah, um, well, I think it's a I think it's a serious threat. Um, uh, I do think that the we sort of on January 6th had the end of what I consider sort of the post 9-11 era and the beginning of something else um, where the divisiveness between us as Americans is really the greatest threat to us. It just it just paralyzes us. And for some individuals, a small number, but still an important number of individuals, that divisiveness escalates into violence. Um, and certainly I've seen in my district and, and you know, of course, in the Capitol, um, the real harm that that can do when people radicalize, just like I used to watch people radicalize abroad. We're horrified when um, an ethnically or racially motivated extremism guns down people when they're worshiping in a church or a synagogue or two dozen people who are shopping in a Walmart. This is something we've created out of out of a whole cloth of lies, basically, the big lie that the election was stolen and, and the anger that has evolved out of that. How does it make it more difficult in your role to try and crack down on that kind of a threat? Well, look, I think the big lie is certainly part of it, but there has been a culture for a number of years now um, of division coming from the top. Um, and, you know, I'm someone, I'm former CIA officer. I worked alongside the military my entire career. Leadership climate is set at the top. And for many years now, it's been um, a strategy to divide people as a way to govern. Um, so we shouldn't be surprised when people at, you know, the grassroots level 
are looking at their elected leaders and saying, huh, okay, well, they're saying inflammatory things. They're saying hateful things. They're dividing us as a, as a purposeful thing. I'm going to do the same thing at my school board meeting. I'm going to do the same thing at my city council meeting or at my workplace. So it's seeped into the meat of at least places like Michigan, but it is something that is front and center for a lot of us who live in communities that have really, really big political divisions on the grassroots level. We were all just, again, aghast watching what happened on January 6th, as I know you were. But you've mentioned that this is not alien to you. You represent the Michigan 8th, and you've seen this within your own district. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, um, in Michigan, you know, we had armed protesters uh, force their way into our capital um, and sort of lured their weapons, brandished their weapons over our state legislators in April of 2020, you know, nine months before the January 6th events. Um, we've had a precipitous rise in militias, particularly the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Boys. Um, the plot to kidnap and kill my governor came from my district and were um, a, a full half of those who have been arrested were uh, my constituents. So we've been watching this to the point where Many of us knew there was going to be some sort of violence on January 6th. I just thought it would be on the lawn. I just never thought that it would be inside the Capitol. Um, and so we've been seeing this, this um, happening for a while. And it's why it's just extremely important. Um, the messaging that goes out from elected leaders, from people who have the bully pulpit, um, has to, to change. And social media, particularly the way it spreads disinformation, must be, those companies must be held accountable. So there's a, a number of things we need to look at. But um, unfortunately, in Michigan, we have seen these kind of events for a good solid year plus now. Director Brennan, I'm going to talk to you because you've probably held more high-level, top-level national security positions than anybody in the last two decades. And yet, you were targeted by somebody who held the bully pulpit, Donald Trump. Um, he put you on an enemies list. He um, he said he was revoking your national uh, your uh, security clearance, and basically that mentality is sort of the same mentality that's at work underlying this surge in, in some of the domestic violent extremism, where people are are taking out their wrath on others because of the anger, and. Again, I go back to how do you fight disinformation and misinformation when the threat is this pernicious? Well, it is such a serious concern, as we have seen uh, over the last several years, this growth in this ideological fervor that is manifesting itself in extremist and even violent ways. And unfortunately, as you point out, there are individuals in the political environment who are encouraging this type of uh, behavior and these attitudes for their own personal, political, or ideological uh, reasons. And so therefore, it's a very insidious threat here in the United States. After 9-11, when we tried to protect this country from terrorist attacks, uh, we strengthened our borders and we instituted a number of uh, security measures to make it more difficult for these foreign terrorist groups to carry out attacks. But unfortunately here, since it is in this country and is insidious, it's within our midst, this is something that is going to be a challenge, I think, for individuals like Representative Slotkin and others to try to ensure that this country remains a country of laws and that we're not going to allow these ideological differences to really polarize us and to divide us as a country. I've heard you say that going after domestic terrorism 
is a harder proposition than going after foreign extremism. Can you explain why? Again, since we are a country of laws, we want to make sure that we continue to hold those civil liberties, privacy rights of individuals very dear to us. Um, we have to make sure that we're not going to be doing things that are going to abridge those rights. And so a lot of individuals, including those in Representative Slotkin's district who are U.S. citizens, uh, they are able to take advantage of the freedoms and liberties that we enjoy as a country. So unlike the foreign terrorist groups that, again, we were able to do things on our borders, on our entry points, and also be able to take actions against individuals overseas before they came here, they are already here. And again, they are being encouraged uh, by individuals who play upon the very legitimate concerns and grievances about uh, employment, about uh, other types of things. That, and unfortunately, a lot of these extremists within our midst are reactionaries. They're the ones who are reacting negatively to government actions and uh, interventions as they see it in their personal lives. Our focus today is on domestic uh, terrorism, but given the recent events in Afghanistan, people are really upset and concerned about the potential for a resurgence of terrorism coming from abroad. Director Brennan, I know that you're not psychic, but what does your gut tell you on, on that particular front? Well, I know that the intelligence community is working hard to be able to compensate for their lost intelligence collection capabilities inside of Afghanistan, as the intelligence community has had to pull out along with the US military. That said, I know that uh, working alongside the FBI and other agencies of the federal government, they're going to in try to ensure that, again, the, the measures that were put in place in the aftermath of 9-11 over the last 20 years are going to continue to stay strong. And it just also underscores the need to work with our partners around the globe, including in the region, so that we're able to identify these threats as they develop and before they're able to manifest themselves in violent attacks uh, here in the homeland. Frank, I've heard you say that right now we're in a perfect storm of grievance and cause, and that what's going on right now in terms of the threat level could be exacerbated by what's happened in Afghanistan. Talk about that, if you would. Yeah, the, the phrase perfect storm, I've borrowed from DHS alerts that, that referred to that phrase. And they're refers, referring to a convergence of what I call cause and grievance that, that unfortunately seems to be getting stronger, even though Trump, of course, is out of office. There are some ominous signs that this is no longer all about uh, former President Trump. And in fact, if we want a sign of that, we need no look no further than a recent rally in Alabama where the president um, encouraged people to get their vaccine, said he had been vaccinated. The crowd booed that. At the same rally, uh, Representative Mo Brooks said it's time to put 2020 election fraud behind us and move forward. And again, he got booed and had to issue a strong retraction um, and withdraw from his own statement. What does that tell us? It tells us that this isn't just all about one person, one leader, and a MAGA movement. It's become much larger than that and embedded in our society. And so they look for additional causes and grievances to justify themselves. They see this all as kind of us versus them. They want no part of refugees who look different and talk different and worship different than the rest of us. 
And there, you can add that to the growing list from COVID, uh, COVID vaccine mandates and mask mandates, all of which fuels this sense of us versus them. I've got a cause to fight for, and I am aggrieved. But there's also a lot of affirmation coming from some of them, some of the high-profile people. Uh, you mentioned Representative Mo Brooks from Alabama, who uh, during this recent incident with a, a man who was, I think he had a, a truck bomb or something, they defused the situation. But after it happened, Mo Brooks said, well, I can understand why he's angry, thereby once again giving dispensation as so many people do in this country, to all sorts of noxious behavior. So maybe you're noticing some shifts in terms of it's not all tied to one person, this, this, this loyalty and um, this fervor. But what about this whole notion that we affirm bad behavior in this country, or some people affirm bad behavior? Well, I, I'm never popular when I draw this comparison, but I have to tell you that we are seeing a kind of radicalization process, particularly online, particularly fueled by leaders, including elected officials like we're talking about, who jump on this kind of train that they believe leads to re-election. They believe leads to stronger polls. They know these falsehoods are not true. They know this is potentially dangerous rhetoric, but it is radicalizing people. And whether they intend for it to result in violence or not, there is a growing sense, as reflected in recent DHS warnings, about violence. And I think the threat actually is no longer just isolated to the D.C. area and our iconic targets like January 6th, but I think the threat which resulted in DHS warnings to law enforcement, will expand to softer targets across the United States. We have some footage of a young woman uh, who believes the big lie, who, based on that, showed up on January 6th. And let's take a look at that. Frank, we want to get your reaction on the other side. What are we here for? To stop the seal. And what happened today? I'm not sure. They stormed the Capitol, people broke through and uh, raced through the building, and then the uh, legislature got scared and left. So we didn't certify for Joe Biden, so that's good. I don't know what happened because I can't get any source, I can't get any uh, internet on my phone. But I think patriots are really standing up. I'm super happy that they're standing up, and people are really pissed off because we know how much cheating took place. If he would have won fair and square, I think we would be fine, but we can't let them overthrow our country. How do you start to fight against a mentality like that? You see in her language the, the power of propaganda and the impact it's had and the challenge we all have as a society to, to show her sunlight, get her up above the rabbit hole that she's in. But it's incredibly different uh, environment we're operating in with the social media platforms and, and disinformation on steroids. And I would be remiss uh, as a counterintelligence professional, if I didn't point out that much of this propaganda online has been fueled and seeded by foreign intelligence services, namely uh, from the Russian government. So we're up against more than just ourselves. We're, we're up against a domestic terrorism threat that's being fueled by a foreign adversary. It's very, very powerful. It will require a whole of society response. Alyssa, I want to go back to you right now to talk about the fact that um, these folks are ordinary folks. The folks at January 6th, a lot of them, they could be the local bartender, the local school teacher, the local firefighter. 
they don't broadcast their racism, their hatred, their propensity for violence. And yet I've heard you talk about um, there, you have gleaned fodder where you're able to help identify some of these folks. Could you, could you talk about that? Sure. I mean, you know, a lot of uh, the way I approached this was taken from what I watched when people radicalized abroad in groups like, you know, Al Qaeda or ISIS. You have folks who have a sense of grievance, um, it, deserve it or not, but they feel a sense of grievance. And many of them, particularly in my district, are um, radicalized online. They find community, they find other people who agree with them, they find um, a connection to people because of that shared sense of grievance. Um, and that in and of itself, um, you know, they have the right to free speech, they have the right to congregate and meet with people online and, and, uh, and, you know, in person. But then you start to see this ladder be climbed. And the next thing we see is uh, people posting things that are hateful, inflammatory, um, racist, um, uh, threatening in some way. The next you hear about someone having incidents either at school or at work. Um, they've gotten into a conflict with a coworker. They've used threatening language with a boss. They get fired potentially sometimes. Uh, all of these things are signs. And, and unfortunately, once you go past the, the verbal, um, uh, you know, use of, of hate, you start to get into um, acts of vandalism. Um, uh, felonies start to follow. We have a lot of graffiti problems, um, defacing uh, of, you know, Jewish organizations, the spray painting of swastikas. You start to see that defacing of cemeteries. Um, and then sort of at the top of the ladder, we see people become violent. You know, they've, they literally take matters into their own hands and threaten people. There are, there are patterns, and that's why we tell people you have to report these incidents, right? We have a massive underreporting of these because someone sitting at home says, oh, okay, you know, someone defaced, uh, you know, my property. I'm not going to bother anyone with that. It's, it didn't hurt me. I'm not going to report it. You need to report because that's where you can see patterns and that's where you can engage and try and stop that cycle of escalation. Religion expert Robert P. Jones uh, was very strong in his warning about a variation on this, on this dangerous, dangerous theme that we're talking about. And that is that after January 6th, he did an analysis of the, the alliance between um, white supremacists and evangelicals who were there on January 6th. And he noted it was rife with symbols of Christianity. It was Bibles and Bible phrases and crosses. And in fact, the Christian flag, which many people might not recognize, was actually taken into the house chamber alongside the Confederate flag. So how does this, this sort of new um, amalgam of those groups, evangelicals and white supremacists, complicate this situation? Well, I myself, I mean, just walking across the Capitol grounds before the violence really started, I was just walking to work and it was kind of like a Lollapalooza of different groups, um, some of which I thought had very little to do with each other. Neo-Nazis and church choirs singing, you know, next to each other. So I saw that myself. Um, I, I think um, my hope, uh, since we know that some people were there on January 6th, to protest um, and without an intent to go in the Capitol, my hope is that at least some of the people who were there say, you know what, 
I shouldn't have been there. It turned violent. I don't support, I don't support that. And they've walked away from their participation. So I hope that people have thought better of it, but it is this weird, um, sort of coalition of people, um, of organizations. Um, and I, I do, I do think this comes back to a shared sense of grievance and a shared approach, um, and absorption of propaganda, right? You have the same groups, um, uh, spousing, uh, putting out these messages um, in small communities like mine, as we see on TV at the national level, and people are absorbing that, and they're incorporating that into their own feelings of anger. Um, so it is this coalition, and you know, I, I certainly um, hope particularly for uh, those Christian groups that they've thought better of some of these coalitions because it, it couldn't be further from, I think, the stated goals of the Christian faith. Director Brennan, because I, I would assume you've seen it all, and yet I wonder, when you were watching those pictures, and I've never heard you say really what you were thinking, were you, were you in shock? Did you think it could ever happen? Were you just totally, uh, you know, in disbelief that it was happening? What were you thinking? I was thinking that was reminiscent of many scenes that I had seen over the course of my career, but these were scenes overseas. I never believed that this would be happening in our country, in our nation's capital, and never believed that it was going to be encouraged by individuals in government. And I feel that there is a special responsibility on the part of elected officials to be honest, to have professional uh, integrity and to uh, not uh, misinform and mislead. But uh, I've been disappointed over the years, the depth of dishonesty uh, that has been shown by so many public officials. Many of those individuals who descended upon the Capitol who were outside do have some legitimate concerns and grievances that need to be addressed. But they are being, they're pawns in the hands of individuals such as Donald Trump and others who, again, um, tell these falsehoods and misinform uh, the American people. And so therefore, when I saw what was happening that day, I just, I couldn't believe that it was happening, but also it was being abetted by a person in the White House, but also some members of Congress who seemed to be willing to resort to any tactic, the equivalent of biting and kicking and uh, to win fights, uh, their political fights that uh, they have a personal stake in. Another area in which some people in high places are aiding and abetting is the whole subject of QAnon, which is a, a conspiracy situation where people think that Satan worshiping pedophiles are controlling the levers of power. And it's much more complex than that. But the point is at this stage, Robert Jones, again, the religion expert, has said that some 15 to 17% of Americans actually accept some of the principles of QAnon. When you've got a situation where QAnon now rivals a mainline religion in terms of its breadth and membership or following, again, I, I keep asking you the same question and I apologize, but it's like, how do you start to break through something that many people believe in? Well, it's tough. And with the explosion, the technological explosion in communication systems and the um, proliferation of social media, uh, there is just so many news feeds, information feeds that are out there uh, that are accurate and inaccurate. 
that people gravitate towards. And I do think that there needs to be greater responsibility on the part of those individuals who um, own and operate uh, these mechanisms for information. And it's not just up to the government. I think we all have to take personal responsibilities for what we do and how it impacts our society, our fellow Americans. And uh, this is, I think, a real tough challenge for our government, again, to balance privacy and civil liberties, but at the same time, uh, not uh, allow uh, this misinformation to run rampant that really undermines the foundation of our democracy and our republic. Fervor, ideological fervor drives a lot of people. And we have some footage of a man, again, who was um, at the sacking of the Capitol on January 6th. And I'd like to get your reaction to this when we come back from that. There you go. There you go, brother. We're normal people. You want to know the difference between people like us and Antifa and BLM? We respect the law. We were good people. The government did this to us. We were normal, good, law-abiding citizens. And you guys did this to us. We want our country back. We are protesting for our freedom right now. Well, I've seen that same type of fervor and that anger in the eyes and in the commentary of individuals who have joined terrorist organizations around the globe. Again, their, their, their prism that they look at things is really a distorted one. And therefore, they are reacting. Again, they're reactionaries to whether it be progress or things that they just don't agree with. And unfortunately, that anger, that hatred, that disgust uh, frequently then uh, transcends into taking acts of violence uh, against fellow citizens. So uh, th this is a very worrying, disturbing uh, phenomenon that we're seeing this in uh, our own country, among American citizens that who we live with, uh, that they are have been so, so exploited by uh, individuals uh, who are, again, sort of making it a movement uh, among people to try to, to take action into their own hands against what's going on in this country. Frank, when people believe in something that strongly, whether it's religion or a cause or an ideology, whatever it is, they are w much more willing to do things they might not ordinarily do, like act out violently. Um, especially, and this is the other piece of that, when they feel like they're being victimized, when they feel they're being repressed. And apparently the polls on many evangelicals feel that they're discriminated against, feel that they are much more um, oppressed than African-Americans, people of color, LGBTQ constituencies. How does that make your job even harder in terms of trying to uh, rein in this threat? Yeah, you're correct um, to identify this sense that Christianity is being targeted, this false perception that this, this is an existential threat to my religious belief system. It, that kind of scenario is perhaps the strongest motivation that will lead someone to even give up their life for that cause, real or perceived. Um, and then the wrapping of patriotism around that sentiment, redefining of patriotism, right? You, you've seen all the people uh, in, the, in the building on the Capitol on January 6th referring to themselves as patriots. We've literally redefined what it means to be a patriot. And in some senses, uh, some have redefined what it means to be a Christian. The, the strength of the QAnon 
um, falsehoods is just that, that that there these these evil people are controlling the world because they are Satan worshipers, they are cannibals, they are pedophiles. You you possibly couldn't come up with three stronger, uh, viscerally disgusting things to uh, to motivate somebody. And so you see this in international terrorism, people willing to give their lives. Why? Because the other that 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 group called the other are infidels. They are evil. They are somehow less than human. That makes them worthy of destruction. And that's very, very troubling. Where are we seeing that? For those who think I'm being a little bit too dramatic, we're seeing people now refusing vaccines, even though it endangers their health, their children's health. When you see people willing to endanger their lives for a cause, you need to pay very close attention to that, because that means the anti-radicalization process is going to be extremely difficult and it's going to need all hands on deck if we can even get today a unified response to anything in this country. Would you, Frank, talk a little bit about the special uh, challenges of trying to identify and, and again, crack down on some of these very violent militias like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, because you run up against prickly problems with law enforcement. Again, Alyssa mentioned it a little bit earlier in terms of they have a right to assemble, uh, Second Amendment rights. So it makes it a lot trickier, I'm assuming. Does it? Uh, you, you are correct. Let's, let's, be, uh, let's pick the most practical examples, tangible examples of the challenges of law enforcement here. Uh, first, as many Americans are surprised to learn, we do not have a federal law against domestic terrorism. Many people just automatically assume that domestic terrorism is against the law in and of itself. But this is precisely why you're seeing the people involved in the insurrection being arrested for things like property damage, trespass, theft, assault. We don't have a law to point to, as we do with international terrorism, um, when it comes to domestic terrorism. What does that mean in terms of practicality? It, it means that, first of all, we can't levy charges and sentences. And you hear many people complaining about perceived leniency of the sentencing so far, um, because those we don't have a charge that reflects the gravity of what was done. The other thing uh, people don't really know um, widely is that we don't have a mechanism in our government to designate certain groups and organizations as domestic terror organizations. All of this means that historically fewer resources have been devoted um, at the FBI to the domestic terror threat. U.S. attorneys are more uh, likely to decline prosecution or even want to receive a case that may involve ideology and thought when really we should be focusing on violence. But the problem is we always have to wait for the violence to occur to allow the, the investigation to happen. I say this, civil liberties and security are not mutually exclusive. I think we can do this and I think for years, the civil liberties concerns have prevented us from even having a conversation about changing a law or designating a group. Alyssa, I was actually going to ask you about the whole civil liberties piece, because obviously those values are the bedrock of our country and you can't abrogate them. I mean, people can hold all kinds of uh, just horrible views, um, dangerous views, and unless they act on them, really, that's their right to express. So so how do you deal with that in your committee? In term, is, is that a big piece of what you look at in your committee? 
Yeah, and I think I think Frank had it really right on. There is this real angst and concern around um, a domestic terrorism law because we have such a history in our country of a bad behavior and. Um, we all are worried about intelligence communities spying on American citizens. We we understand where that comes from, right? Um, and I found an unusual coalition between people uh, tra- traditionally thought of as very conservative, kind of right wing, and v- folks who are um, very progressive on the left wing side. They have a, a unity of purpose on this issue. They're, they do not want a domestic terrorism law. But I think what people um, sometimes miss in this conversation is that your freedom of speech ends when you threaten violence against another. That's not freedom of speech to threaten somebody, to be angry about your government or angry at someone, an elected official. That's absolutely your right, but not to threaten violence. And so I've been encouraging people to remember that and to um, think about legislation, think about new bills, new laws, new ideas, based around that construct. Um, And um, if you focus on that threat of violence, I think there is space to do more than what we currently have in the books. But I mean, any time we move on this in my committee, in the House in general, um, you get an, an, an automatic knee jerk reaction of very strong negative against anything new on the books. At this point, Alyssa, we have a video question from a young woman named Nigeria, who is actually in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And um, I'd like to get your thoughts on it first on the other side. Here it is. What necessary steps need to be taken federally to ensure that an event like January 6th does not happen again? Yeah, great question. Um, so there are a couple things that need to, to happen to avoid another January 6th. First of all, we do need our government to be appropriately resourced against domestic terrorism, right? We need to have the people at the Department of Homeland Security, at the FBI, um, who are looking at this threat. You know, before 9-11, there were people who looked at domestic terrorism in a, in a more serious way. But after 9-11, everyone turned to foreign terrorism. I remember being a brand new baby analyst at the CIA. And, you know, the cool kids wanted to do foreign terrorism, not domestic terrorism. Well, we're, we're out of sync with what we need um, for uh, the current threat. Um, we need people who are watching um, for threats of violence, for organization um, of violence. You know, there, there was plenty of warning. Um, that this kind of event was happening and that there were people who were hoping to get inside the Capitol and make it a violent event. We should have had much more warning from our own government about what was coming. Um, uh, Number two, uh, we need, um, frankly, um, a better sense from our state and locals on what they're seeing on the ground on domestic terrorism, on militia activity. They need to be much more forthright Um, and much more comprehensive in what they're seeing on the ground and reporting that so that one hand knows what the other hand is doing. Frankly, we need to do more education in communities that are inclined towards this kind of violence. You know, there is a whole world of digital literacy that we need to be teaching people in our schools so that they are skeptical when they see these false claims. They think twice before they just absorb something that they're told. 
Um, you know, we, we have a, a lot of work to do when it comes to educating people so that when they get that call to action, when they get that call to violence, they reject it um, because they've been taught to be skeptical of it. Director Brennan, going back to the question about what can be done to prevent another January 6th, do you, have, you must have thoughts on that as well. I really do think that, as you've pointed out before, it's really a, a whole of nation effort and to make sure that there's not going to be a, a we versus them, that there is a sense that there is a real interest in trying to address their issues and concern. And from the standpoint of better education, if I, I am a strong proponent of finding ways that we don't have either the left or the right just pushing out information based on maybe political objectives that there needs to be you know, uh, objective uh, opportunities for individuals to hear about what's going on and to uh, get past the propaganda and the misinformation and, and intentional disinformation is out there. And as Frank said, a lot of that is being you know, pushed and encouraged by external uh, actors uh, outside of this country. Some of the challenges that we've touched on, Director Brennan, um, include this whole social media area, which you've talked about a little bit. But um, Bruce Hoffman, who's a professor and counterterrorism expert at Georgetown University, really calls it the propellant of, of this entire domestic violent extremism. Um, again, uh, just a giant area. Do you think that there's going to be uh, any push for accountability on the part of these platforms to try and, and do something to, to help with this societal initiative that we're talking about? Well, I think there's active debate right now within the executive branch as well as in the Congress about whether or not the, uh, the, the operators of these social media platforms um, uh, have some accountability. And I think they're trying to, some of them are demonstrating by pulling down some of those uh, social media uh, tweets and, and other types of things and the commentary that is out there that is not just blatantly false, but also is incendiary. And I do agree that it is a propellant, that it is infuse, infusing individuals with this uh, misguided information that encourages them to take actions uh, against their fellow citizens or against the government. So, but it is a tough issue. And I agree with Frank that it's not an either or, but it is a, a delicate balance to strike between ensuring that we're going to continue to have the freedom of speech and the civil liberties and the, that we all so much treasure, but at the same time, not allowing individuals to take advantage of those opportunities to misinform and to mislead their fellow citizens. Senator Gary Peters talked about the fact we all know that there were were failures of, um, I guess, on the part of communications organizations, of law enforcement, of intelligence in terms of um, January 6th, which is Gary Peters said, Senator Gary Peters said, really happened. The planning happened in plain sight. Do you feel, Director Brennan, that um, the FBI has been unduly criticized? or that law enforcement, what's your feeling on that? Do you think more could have been done to prevent January 6th from happening? Well, I've long been a great admirer of uh, the Bureau uh, and their, their work, especially since 9-11, where 
there's been tremendous collaboration uh, across the uh, federal government to try to take advantage of the knowledge that uh, that you have and to share that information. But I, I do think that in light of what happened January 6th, there are some questions, uh, very legitimate questions that have been raised about whether or not the system did not operate as well as it could have and should have. And so I, I do think this is gonna be a process of continuous review and improvement to make sure that uh, if we have that insight in advance about violent activities, that everything is done to make sure that the people who can stop it, prevent it, and deal with it are fully informed. Frank, given that just the title of your book alone, The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's uh, Code of Excellence, clearly you are an advocate. You have great pride in the FBI. What is your response to somebody like Gary Peters who really is saying you did, they didn't do enough in this particular case? Well, I say that's correct, but I also think we need context here. It's essential to understand the constraints on the Bureau. Um, specifically, I've said many times that January 6th was not so much an intelligence failure, but rather a failure to act upon available intelligence. And chief among the reasons for that, I think, is this inability we seem to have as Americans to view ourselves, people who look like us, people who talk like us, um, as a threat. I think that was the overriding issue. Now, layer upon that, the attorney general guidelines, the domestic operating guidelines that the FBI operates under, um, and it's extremely difficult to open up investigations and cases when you don't yet have that violent act in terms of domestic terrorism. We cannot, as, as opposed to international terrorism efforts, we cannot willy-nilly, nor do we want uh, wiretap intercepts on Americans. We don't want to monitor uh, telephone conversations routinely. But we've got to change something if the FBI is going to get out in front of the next act of domestic terrorism. If you switch these actors, switch their religion to Islam or their skin color to brown, I'm concerned that this would have been prevented because the rules and perceptions would have changed to allow proactive intercept of what was happening. There's always such an equivalence made between um, extremism, violence wrought on the side of the right or the side of the left. And in fact, domestic violent extremism on the side of, of um, the extreme right is far more prevalent. It's a false equivalence. Why isn't it just debunked as such? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. Director, FBI Director Chris Wray has testified on the Hill saying to Congress, and I applaud him for saying it, that the data indicates that, quote, the most lethal form, the most lethal form of domestic terrorism is hate-based, race-based terrorism inside the United States. So we know that's true, yet we continue to give far more attention to um, violent acts and ideologies, it seems, on the far left. It's not commensurate. And even we can show that in the, the riots over last summer in the city, in the cities around America, we saw riot police, we saw heavily resourced law enforcement, even federal uh, agents disbanded or deployed to cities. And what did we see on January 6th? With all kinds of available intelligence, we saw an inadequately staffed law enforcement response. We've got to fix that and we've got to understand that the domestic threat is now the priority threat, as Director Ray has, has told us. Director Brennan, it was also particularly alarming and disappointing to find out that there was 
so many law enforcement folks joined what happened on January 6th. And it raises the whole issue of within the ranks of local police departments and and the National Guard and, and anything that deals with law enforcement. Um, basically, these folks are sort of becoming, I, I don't want to say radicalized, but there are a lot more of them. But again, that just demonstrates the power of these propaganda mechanisms that uh, go out there and, again, infuse this type of sentiment among so many sections of our society uh, around the country. And so, therefore, uh, the, the right wing um, uh, is more prone to violence. And we see it globally. Also, people who gravitate toward either law enforcement or military um, also uh, frequently have uh, or have ex access to weapons or um, which is really also quite uh, uh, worrying because these are individuals who are either trained in this type of, of violence or conflict or the use of weapons and so therefore I think rightly I know the US military as well as law enforcement communities around the country are now really looking much more closely at this phenomenon within their ranks and to not just you know identify it, but also try to address it because we rely on these people for our safety and security uh, internationally as well as in our communities. Title of your book, Director Brennan, is Undaunted, My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad. And I have yet to ask you if you could extrapolate lessons from fighting this terror threat abroad and apply them to what's happening in this country in terms of our fight against domestic violent extremism. Are there lessons that can be taken away? Oh, I think there are many lessons because we have seen a variety of terrorist organizations grow and evolve over time. And uh, I think the U.S. government has learned uh, that you cannot just fight terrorists downstream. You have to really be looking at what can be done upstream to prevent individuals from following that path that they start off of uh, having these sentiments, but then they, uh, they gravitate toward the more violent extremist elements uh, that uh, reinforce their views. And so just like overseas, when we saw Al-Qaeda uh, develop from a small organization and grow, um, and Al-Qaeda took advantage of opportunities within countries for people who were disenfranchised or people who felt that they were being neglected, uh, that there really needs to be uh, an effort made to try to address, again, some legitimate grievances of people. Uh, and it really requires uh, government officials as well as others within societies to understand that there is this phenomenon and the, the answer is not to suppress these individuals. The answer is to identify what are some of the root causes and conditions that contribute to this. And again, I, I put the onus on government officials. They have a special obligation to make sure that they are being as honest as they can be with their citizenry and, and not mislead, misinform, and therefore incite them into taking actions that, uh, again, are inconsistent with our values as Americans and with the rule of law. Frank, at the risk of giving folks out there something else to worry about, I am going to ask you about something that I heard you talk about as the possible next threat on the horizon. And that would be if you marry domestic violent extremism to cyber terrorism. If you could talk about that at the risk of asking, um, I'm afraid to ask, but 
but what would that look like? Well, yeah, and, and let's even layer on to that this disturbing trend recently where you even see extremists on the far right aligning themselves with the foreign adversary, for example, Russia. You see a major cable TV news host going and broadcasting for a week from Hungary. You see prominent people on the far right uh, implying that somehow the Taliban is the only uh, uh, strong group now and government in the world. Um, th this is problematic. And, and if you see um, far right violent extremists or violent extremists of any kind getting on the cybersecurity bandwagon, meaning they develop a capability not only to pump out disinformation, but now to deny service, denial of service attacks. It doesn't take a lot of training. You can go to the dark uh, web and purchase uh, tools that will allow you to hack malware, de denial of service uh, capabilities. If that starts happening against targets like healthcare systems that are providing vaccines for people or school systems that are mandating masks, for example, then you're going to start seeing this kind of domestic cyber attack that so many uh, in the intelligence community have become worried about. It's it's really a wake-up call time for increased cybersecurity and the threat we pose to each other here domestically. We have one final video question I'd like, uh, Frank, for you to tackle it first. It's a question that a lot of our viewers asked as well. So we're going to take a look at that right now. Here it is. Hi there. Uh, my name is Brendan and I'm from New York. And my question is, how do we keep young people from getting involved in violent political activity? Great question. And you know, the recently released strategy from the White House through the Attorney General, um, the national strategy to combat domestic terrorism and violent extremism um, speaks to this. It, it's an excellent framework with regard to the whole of society approach that's needed. Now, it's very broad and only about an inch deep on details, but it includes this concept of educating our kids to be far more digitally savvy, to be very informed consumers of information and to make decisions themselves and to vet information. Alyssa, I have a final question for you, and it really comes from, in a way, um, somebody you work with, former Republican Senator and Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel, reminisced about one time when you briefed him as a 30-year-old CIA analyst and you knocked his socks off and he, he said you were so direct and, and um, he was just terribly impressed. So I'm going to ask you for a very candid assessment of what Attorney General Merrick Garland said about one of the key drivers he feels to preventing domestic violent extremism is to promote tolerance and respect in this culture of bilious divisiveness. How optimistic are you that that can happen? Well, I, I think that's a that's a, a, a correct statement. It's just uh, hard to make it actionable, right? Hard to turn that statement into something right. concrete that everyday Americans can do to help their communities. And I'm being asked this all the time, right? Right now, the vanguard of American politics is happening in our school board meetings. Um, you want to see what's really going on in this country? Look at how people are talking to each other and about what in school board meetings. How does uh, the average citizen worried about polarization and anger in their community take what the attorney general said 
and turn it into concrete things. So the, the, the best thing that I've come up with that I recommend to people in my district is get away from politics, go and volunteer, do some community service on an issue you care about that has nothing to do with politics. You care about uh, rescuing uh, dogs and cats, um, go work at a pet rescue. You, you care about homelessness and hunger, go work on those issues, meet new people from your community and talk about things besides politics to build up that relationship, to try to build that common cause and, um, and decency between each other. And I, I presume that part of what you just prescribed for, for others involves some quality time with Rocky and Boomer for you. How do you actually take a break from this? They're my dogs. I Two rescue dogs that I got during COVID. Um, and there are a ton of people from my community who say, I don't, I don't really like you. I don't like your political positions, but I love your dogs and I love that you got them from rescue. And so I follow you because of that. Um, uh, uh, my dogs, I live on my family farm. Um, we all need to take a break and get away from our screens, get away from the news and remember to sort of level set what's important um, and to, to act in ways that we would want our children to emulate. Hard to believe we are down to the final two questions of this broadcast. And Director Brennan, I'm going to start with you. 53% of teenagers who were just recently surveyed are very, very concerned about terrorism, domestic terrorism in this country. I know you have, you have three children, you have two grandchildren. And so I guess the question is, how does this whole of society initiative, what can we do to improve the situation for everyone? Well, I, I think we have to recognize that many of us are very fortunate to live in communities, to live in areas of the country that benefit from development, from technological capabilities, from educational opportunities. But there are many people in the United States also who live in depressed areas, those that have borne the brunt of, of some of the, the effects of globalization, uh, outsourcing of employment opportunities and other types of things. And, and so therefore, I think there needs to be recognition on the part of all Americans across this country that this is a country of great diversity in terms of people, in terms of opportunity, and that I think we have all a responsibility and obligation to try to do things that are going to advance our society. Frank, last question goes to you. And it's about when your granddaughter, Eleonora, was born, I think two and a half, almost two and a half years ago. And you tweeted that her name means light and honor and that we're living in a world that could use a lot more of both. How optimistic are you that that's gonna happen? Yeah, I, I love this question because I know that for 25 years of my career, I was paid to be the cynic and expect the worst. The American taxpayer didn't pay me to have a strategy of hope uh, and crossing my fingers. So I was often, as Director Brennan knows, uh, the so-called skunk at the garden party that would come in with the bad news. Um, but here's a sign of hope. I look at the crowdsourcing that the FBI has been engaged in with regard to identifying participants uh, in the violence on January 6th at the Capitol and the incredible success of that initiative. We have a large segment of America that wants to do the right thing and is willing to say, even in the case of their relatives, neighbors, coworkers, this person did the wrong thing. 
I've identified them as a participant on January 6th, and I'm sharing that with you. I find that to be hopeful. I find to be hopeful the fact that increasingly, even as we speak, people are getting vaccinated um, because they increasingly see it as the right thing to do. So exposure to truth, exposure to the sunshine, relationships with people rather than painting them as the infidels or the other or the evil, understanding commonalities. I think there's hope for us, but we've got to do something more than hope. We need action to get us to where we want to be. And on that note, I want to extend heartfelt thanks to our incredibly generous guests for donating their time and talent today, not to mention your exemplary public service careers on behalf of this country. We're so grateful. Thanks for joining us today here in the other Washington, Washington, Connecticut. Until we see you back here next time for Common Ground, I'm Jane Whitney. Take care. I'm your host, Jane Whitney, with heartfelt thanks to you for joining us. Thanks as well to our distinguished guests for helping us to see a complex issue through a different lens as our hope of finding common ground goes on. For more information on this podcast or to watch the broadcast version of Common Ground, visit ctpublic.org forward slash common ground.